If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and we'll be reading through Isaiah 53. Our primary text this morning will be verse 10, but in order that we might have the context, we'll read the whole entire chapter. The resurrection of Christ is the epic point of human history, isn't it? We celebrate Easter Sunday once a year, a significant event in the church where we look back and remember the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Some have remarked that they call it the Super Bowl of Christianity, signifying the importance of the event. But however, that sort of thinking not only distorts what we call the Lord's Day, but it actually places it in our minds that we celebrate the risen Savior only once a year. Let that sink in for a second. The resurrection is the day that we meet as the Lord's Day every single Sunday of the year. Every single Sunday is the Lord's Day. Every single Sunday is the Sunday where we gather in the name of the resurrected Savior. In fact, we gather on the Lord's Day in recognition that He rose on this day, ushering in a new creation. And as the Baptist Catechism says from 1693, is that we do this until the end of the world. In other words, the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection, is every single Sunday, and we do that perpetually until Christ returns. And as He rose on Sunday, we now today are able to rest. We're able to rest in His completed work. And the Sabbath is a day of rest, and the Lord's Day is that day that we're able to rest from our labors and our toiling and rest in the one that has risen from the dead. Every Lord's Day is a recognition that we gather in that completed work of Christ that we may rest in it. And this morning, as we look at the text this morning, we're going to see three primary things. We're going to see the completion of His work. We're going to see the reward for His work. And then we're going to see the rewarding of His work. So let us hear the Word of God. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. This is God's Word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who is believed? What he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God, and may the Lord bless the reading of his word. This was a prophecy of Christ some 800 years before Christ even was born and lived his life and went to the cross and died and was resurrected again. God's word had already stated that this would happen. In fact, we see in verse 10 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In other words, the cross, the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Christ, the ascension was all according to the plan of God from eternity. It was his will to make it happen. And specifically, we see that will comes about in the work of Christ. And so what was the work of Christ? The work of Christ was to live a perfect life. To come to the cross and to die and suffer on the cross, to be buried and then to rise again. And so we see in this text in verse 10, I want you to notice there as we will spend most of our time there in verse 10, we see first the completion of his work. And we see that in this phrase, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That is speaking of the complete, accomplished work of Christ that has been done by Christ Himself. It states that He will make Himself an offering. His soul, He Himself is the one who presents the sacrifice, and He is the sacrifice. He Himself is the guilt offering. Christ presented himself as the guilt offering for the guilt of others, not for his own. I want you to 
notice. And I'll go through many passages of Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but you can listen. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, it says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What it is saying, very simply, is what Isaiah 53 is saying, is that Christ offered himself up by taking on human flesh and then presenting that to God. Christ takes sin and takes on flesh to be a representative for man, to stand in their place. We have to see that so clearly, that Christ is a substitute. That's what it means that he himself presents himself as a guilt offering. He presents himself as a substitute for others. Now, as you read through the, the Scriptures, you see this comparison throughout the Scriptures, a comparison between Christ and the first man, Adam. Adam was the first man to represent all of mankind. He was to stand as the head of all of mankind and represent them, but Adam failed. And how do I know that Adam was to represent all of us and now we're responsible because of Adam's sin is because Adam's sin is what has corrupted our own nature. We inherit the sin of Adam. We sin because we are sinners. We don't sin and then become sinners. Actually, our sins pour out of the fact that we are born with a sinful nature, a corrupted nature because of the sin of Adam. Adam represented us, but Adam failed, and because of Adam, we have a sinful nature, and thus sin. We transgress the law of God. And so we are in desperate need of a second Adam, a second man to come and represent us. A truly human man could come and be our substitute. This is why we notice in the text it says that Christ makes himself an offering for guilt. He does that as a substitute. Now it says in the text, when he makes this, which is speaking of a completed task. Christ offers himself only one time. It's not to be repeated. Christ has accomplished this work. It's speaking of something that has happened. The cross has taken place. Christ, as the sacrificial lamb, has given himself already once and for all, and it will not happen again. Salvation is a one-time event. Forgiveness of sins is a one-time event. Redemption is a one-time event. Reconciliation is a one-time event. Restoration with God, peace with God, is a one-time event in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has offered Himself. He has made Himself a guilt offering. It's not to be repeated again. And so if you have guilt for your sin... 
if you walk with that idea that you, an acknowledgement of sin, and you have that guilt, there's only one that makes an offering for your guilt. There is only one that will satisfy the justice of God. There is only one that has made himself a guilt offering. And it is Christ. It is Christ that has done this. We have to see this as a plan of our triune God. Our God is three. Our God is one. Our God is one being, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this was a triune work of God in Isaiah 53. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, which is speaking of the Father. And then we see in verse 12 of Isaiah 53 that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions. It says it's something that Christ himself did, and in Hebrews 9.14 says that he did this in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of our triune God. This is a work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father didn't go to the cross The Spirit didn't go to the cross, but yet it's the Father who sent the Son to the cross, and it was in the power of the Spirit that the Son went to the cross. It's the triune work of God. Why did it have to be this way, though? Why did it have to be a guilt offering? Specifically, why did it have to be a bloody cross? Why did he have to suffer the way he did. Why did a man sent from God as God in human flesh have to go through such an ordeal? Well, we're in the Old Testament, and so it's important to use the language of the Old Testament. It speaks of an offering for guilt, which is speaking of a, of a sacrifice. And in Leviticus, we read of the significance of a blood sacrifice. We read in Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Life is in the blood. But the blood of an animal cannot represent man, could it? The blood of an animal could not accomplish what only a man could as a substitute. And this is why we see the necessity of a human substitute. We read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Christ is our great high priest that offered himself. You know, the interesting thing is about this language of a guilt offering. When you read in in the Old Testament about the prescription for all of the offerings and the sacrifices, it can get rather confusing. 
And it's easy to get them mixed up and remember what the significance. Was this a burnt offering? Was this a guilt offering? Was this a peace offering? And you read of all of these different sacrificial offerings that took place. But you know what's interesting? The language of Isaiah speaks of Christ as a guilt offering. And when you go study a guilt offering in the Old Testament, it's the one that stipulates that the person that offers it recognizes their own need and their own guilt that they have. And that's why they present it. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, listen to this, then realizes his guilt. I want you to hang on to that language there, is that the guilt offering was presented because a person came to a recognition of their guilt. They came to a recognition of their sin. All of a sudden, it dawned on them, I'm a sinner, and I have a problem with God. Is there any way that I can make atonement with God? It's a fascinating thing to think about that that's the very language that in the prophecy of what Christ is to do on behalf of sinners, it uses the language of a guilt offering, the very offering that requires for the person to recognize they are guilty, that they are in need of atonement. And so what they would do is they would take their sacrificial animal to the priest and place it before God, And thus the ram or the lamb or whatever the animal was would take the curse of the sin upon itself and it was to represent forgiveness before God. And there would be this ceremony, you see it in Leviticus 1.4, where the, the sinner would place their hand upon the head of the ram, recognizing a, a transmission of sin from him to the sacrifice. And then it would be presented. There would be a transfer of guilt. And I I just want you to notice, and and I want to just beat this to death, and that is this. The guilt offering was available to those that realized their guilt. It was available to those that recognized that they were in need of atonement. It was available to those that came to an awareness of their sin and said, I need forgiveness. That's who it was available for. However, can an animal represent us? Can an animal stand in our place and actually truly take sins? No. This is why we see in the New Testament that Christ was that sacrifice for us. And Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us. In Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 2 it says this, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you notice it says that He became a sacrifice for us, and that He became a curse on our behalf. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He gave himself as a curse. He gave himself as a sacrifice. He gave himself as a ransom for us. And so let me ask you this morning, have you recognized your guilt? Have you realized that you are in need of a substitute to stand in your place? Let me put it another way is this, is have you placed your faith in the hands of the Lamb of God? And has your guilt been transferred to Him and thus nailed to the cross and you are no longer guilty? Because, friends, Christ was that guilt offering. He is the only guilt offering. And it was a one-time event never to be repeated. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you beheld the Lamb? Have you beheld that Lamb? When Christ on the cross shouted out, It is finished. He gave up his life. And he completed the work. And he completed it exactly as his Father had given him. He was obedient. This is why Ephesians uses the language that his sacrifice was a fragrant offering, meaning the Lord approved of the sacrifice. And so we see then in the text in Isaiah 53, I want you to notice the reward for his work. It says this, He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. And that is that the Father was pleased with the Son. And because the Father was pleased with the Son, He rose Him from the dead. And now it's amazing that when you see this in the language, that He shall see His offspring, He shall prolong His days. And the reason I read the entire chapter was to see in the context of Isaiah that Christ suffered. In fact, we see in verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. When you read those verses, you feel a sense of desperation because this man that did no wrong dies. This man that had done no no wrong suffers. In many ways, you see in Isaiah 53 the futility of this life that was lived by the Messiah. And as you read Isaiah 53, it comes across that he was defeated, that he was a failure, that Christ was overcome, that the plan of God was ruined. In fact, that's what the world believes today. I recently listened to Ben Shapiro on Joe Rogan's podcast where he simply said that Jesus was a failed Jewish rebel against the Romans. That, that's the most listened to podcast in the world. Significant outreach is done through that podcast. How does the world view Jesus as a felled rebel that wasn't able to throw the yoke of the Roman army off of him. They see him as a failure. 
And as you read Isaiah 53, you see of his death, you see of his suffering, but Isaiah 53 also tells of his victory. Isaiah 53 also tells us that he was not a felled rebel, but he is the resurrected Savior. And that is why we see it says, He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. That is the promise of the resurrection. That is the promise of an empty tomb. That is the promise of an empty tomb that had eyewitnesses. That is the promise of an empty tomb that if the evidence was to stand before a court of law, it would be proven that there is an empty tomb. But we don't need a court of law. We have the word of God that declares that he was risen from the dead. And let me tell you this, is that we live in light of this. And we live in light of it by this. We either reject it, or we receive it, and it changes everything about our lives. But either way, we live in light of the resurrection. We either stand in judgment with it, or it stands in judgment for us. How do you view the cross? Does the cross stand in judgment against you or does the judgment of the cross stand for you? I want you to notice how blessed the Savior is. It says that he shall see his offspring. What what does that mean? Offspring is usually the word seed. But who is the seed that it says he shall see? It's interesting in Isaiah It tells us in several places about this seed. In Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6, and it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. So here it's saying that that seed, that future seed is of Israel and of Jacob. But that's not all it says. It says in verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Who is that seed? It is the race of all promised, that he shall see nations come to him. In Isaiah 45, in verse 22, it says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified in shall glory. Who is that seed? It is the race of every nation. And the full realization of this comes, we see in Isaiah chapter 60 in verse 3, and the nations shall come to your light. Christ shall see his offspring. Christ shall see his seed. Notice what it says. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They are all gathered together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Who is this seed that he should see? Paul calls it very simply the mystery. Jews and Gentiles together. And that mystery is the church. That offspring that Christ shall see because he is resurrected is the mystery of the church. And I want you to see the beauty of this is that all nations come to Christ. All nations come to worship before him. And I want you to see the realization of it in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's the promise of worship before the resurrected Savior. And the worship comes not just from one people group, but from all people groups, from all nations, all tribes, all tongues come to worship. In other words, worship and exaltation of the Lamb, of those that have realized their guilt and trusted in the suffering servant, will worship. That's God's ultimate end. God's ultimate end in all things is His glory. His ultimate end is His worship. This is us. That's applied to the church. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in the Savior, that's applied to you. That we are to gather and we are to worship Him. And there's something that's a humbling truth that we have to to realize if we do not worship the Lord now, we indeed will not worship Him in eternity. He has called us to gather to worship Him. He has called us now. It says that He will have a long life. What does that mean? It's speaking again that He is resurrected. How was the Son resurrected? seems that this is a point of confusion for many, and now with the advent of things like podcasts and social media, you see people post quaint sayings repeating different things, and you end up seeing bad theology being thrust. Who rose the sun from the dead? The triune God rose the sun from the dead. In fact, you see this clearly in the New Testament. It says, God, speaking of the Father, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. But that's not all that you see in the resurrection of Christ. You see that the Son rose himself. In John chapter 10, verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The Son raises Himself. But we also see that in Romans chapter 8, in verse 11, the Spirit, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead 
Who rose Jesus from the dead? The triune God rose Jesus from the dead. And specifically, that was the vindication of his perfect obedience to the Father. Another false assumption is that the Father was angry with the Son. Far from being angry with the Son, the Son is raised and given, as Isaiah says, long life. I want you to, again, put this in the context of Isaiah. Isaiah focuses in on his death and the crucifixion. And if we didn't read that he shall see his offspring and be given long life, it would seem as whatever seemed as being defeat without those verses was true. But actually what we see is after his crushing, after his sacrifice, what seemed as being defeat is actually here shown to be the opposite. He conquers death. He has victory over death. And here's the one universal common between all of us in this room right now. We are all susceptible to death. We One day we'll all die. It's very real. It's very prevalent. We know that. And so we are susceptible to death unless, listen, unless by grace through faith, we have trusted in the one who has conquered death. He is the one that says, if you believe in me, though you die, yet you shall what? Why? Because he lives. Because he has a long life. Because he sees his seed. You know, again, I... I focus in this, on this idea of Isaiah 53, putting forth the idea of defeat. And let me just remind us, as oftentimes what we may deem as defeat in life, when we face setbacks and we do face those things where it seems like there's defeat in life, we must remember this, that Christ is working all things to their intended end. And he is victorious. And in him, any defeat we face, any setback we have faced, we've already conquered because in him we are more than conquerors. And just as the cross seemed to be defeat, it was anything but defeat, but it was actually victory over sin. The wonderful truth about his resurrection is this, is in Isaiah 53 and verse 12. At the end it says he makes intercession for the transgressors. Makes is in the present tense. Christ right now as risen Savior, given long life that sees his seed, intercedes on behalf of his seed. That could only happen with the long life. But there's something else in this, is because he has saw a long life, because he has seen his seed, our future is wrapped up with this resurrection. What gives us hope in this life is this, is this is not all there is. And if we're living for just this, and this is the best we can have, That means we're only awaiting hell. 
Because eternal life is going to far be better than this. Eternal life is going to make this life seem like a dud. Notice what we are told about the resurrection in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. That's our hope, that he who saw a long life will give us a long life. We will have a resurrected, glorious body like his body, and it will be according to his omnipotent power. The very power he used to resurrect himself. That's the reward for his work, was resurrection. But I want you to see the spreading of this work. It says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's specifically referring to the spread of the gospel through the church. What do you see throughout the book of Acts as you see the risen Savior pouring out His Spirit upon the church that the work of the Lord will prosper in His hand? The work that is to prosper in His hand is the spread of the gospel throughout the church. You see that again all throughout the book of Acts. This is why Paul, when he wrote the church of Corinth, Paul says this of his ministry in 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, my ministry was this, to know Christ crucified, and to say that he knew Christ crucified, and that was the the center of his ministry, is to say, Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended. He said, I knew nothing else other than that. That is how the work of the Lord prospers in his hand is the spreading of the gospel, which means this, is that if you're in Christ this morning, if you are in Christ and have trusted in Christ, it means we have work to do now. It means that we're to be busy. We're to be told as the disciples were watching Christ be ascended up into heaven, why are you looking up into heaven? He will return in the same way. You've got work to do. We're told we have got work to do. The resurrected Lord Jesus, our King of kings, is ruling even now, and He is calling us to proclaim the good news. But there's something else about this. The work of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. He is calling us to gather in His name as a people on His day. And what did we start off with? When is His day? Every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, we're called to gather in His name. That is part of the prospering that is in His hand, is for the church, those Christ died for. 
that we are to celebrate Him. Listen, before a dark and fallen world in recognition that He has risen from the dead. So if you believe Christ has risen in the dead, your testimony before a, a, a fallen world, before a dark world, is what you do with His day. If He is resurrected and you believe that in his, your heart, what is it that you do with His day that He says, gather in My name on this day? He's called us to worship Him. That's our testimony before the world. Every Sunday that we gather together is a declaration that Christ has risen. It is a statement to the world that we serve and worship a risen Savior. Did you know that? That by your gathering to worship the risen Savior on His day is a testimony that people see, that people watch, that people are aware of. Why does this person set aside time to go and drive to a church and listen to someone speak from a book that's over thousands of years old and then sing songs that we don't hear on the radio or on Spotify, whatever you listen to music on, Why do they do that? Why do they gather on a Wednesday to pray? And then why do they do these things? It's because you're testifying to the risen Savior that He is King in your life. You are testifying that you live in light of the Lordship of Christ, that Christ is truly Lord of your life. That's our testimony. Christ says that all the nations will gather before Him to worship. How important is that to us, to worship? Isaiah tells us and begins with the fact that he shall be exalted. It's passive, meaning that someone else lifted him up. And this is the Father exalting the Son to his right hand in the ascension. Our risen Savior is ruling right now. Our risen Savior is exalted right now. Our risen Savior is king over all right now. Our risen Savior is high priest right now. He is sovereign. That means he reigns. That means he's king over all right now. Let me ask you this morning, friends, what or who are you trusting in? You see... We all know we will one day breathe our last. We all know that none of us have conquered death. So this morning, are you trusting in the one that has conquered death? And he has conquered that death for those that will trust in him. This morning, let me ask you, where is your trust? Is your trust in the risen Savior? Is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is risen from the dead? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and that he is our risen Savior, that he is the king of all, of all things and king over all things. Father, I pray that knowing that Christ is risen would be a comfort to your people, to your saints. And I pray, Father, for those that may not have called on the name of the Lord Jesus, that you would move in them now by your Spirit, that they would call upon Christ even now. 
We pray that, Father, we would trust in you by prioritizing what you tell us to prioritize, not because that gains us any favor, but because you are worthy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.